from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Friends, good morning. Our first reading today is from the Gospel of Luke. You may follow along in your pew Bible on page 55 of the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. Now every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to him, to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second text is from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the third chapter, verses 13 to 17, page 3, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan River. He came to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered John, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning. Uh, even to be more like your Son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this uh, sermon series and our first in focus Sunday school series are motivated by our long-range strategic plan. We are seeking a, a journey that will help us explore uh, and investigate 
this notion of servant leadership, an idea we introduced last week, both in the sermon series and in the first and focused Sunday school lecture, because we want to begin as a larger congregation, as a larger church family, what we want to do is have conversations about leadership in this particular way. We believe that the model of leadership that Jesus has set before us as the exemplar of what it means to be fully human, what it means to be a faithful leader, we believe that Jesus' example is that of servant leadership. So when we talk about leadership in the life of our congregation, we want to do it under the heading of servant leadership. Leadership. Now, one of the guiding principles of this series uh, sort of involves that notion that leaders are born. A lot of people you hear them talk about when you ask them, are, are leaders born or made? Many of us have that instinct that leaders are born. There's something natural. There's something intrinsic in their life, some qualities, some characteristics, some way of being that automatically by default makes them a good leader. And, and what we want to say in this series is, yes, there are certain uh, characteristics, there are certain qualities, there are certain preferences, there are certain worldviews that we're just sort of born with that's uh, instinctual or intrinsic in our life. But we also want to make the case that leaders are made. Because leadership, principally, is about developing context-appropriate competencies to lead people into a particular task or a particular purpose. And because contexts vary from station to station, from locale to locale, leadership isn't just a one-size-fits-all. What it takes to lead, let's say, in a nonprofit world may be different than what it takes to lead in a for-profit world. You need some different competencies. Sure, there are certain intrinsic things that a leader may bring to both places, but there are certain skills, certain competencies that we need in these particular Context. And so from a Christian perspective, when we talk about the Christian faith, what we're talking about when we talk about context, where our leadership is born, where our leadership emerges, what we're talking about is both the church and the world. So our context as Christians, when we talk about leadership, when we talk about servant leadership in particular, we're talking about leadership in the life of the church and in the life of the world. And using Jesus as this model, what we're saying is you don't have to be necessarily born with this in order to be a leader in these contexts. That actually by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, we can develop certain competencies, certain skills, certain habits that help us lean into this vision of what it means to be servant Leaders. So that's the essence of this series. We're going to talk about competencies. We're going to talk about habits. We're going to talk about skills that we've learned from Jesus himself that we want to uh, investigate, that we want to explore, that we want to consider when it comes to our leadership life as Christians, our servant leadership life within the church and out in the larger World. Now, if we're going to have that conversation, if we're going to talk about competencies, if we're going to talk about skills, if we're going to talk about habits, I think we have to begin with one particular idea, one particular skill, and that's this. Servant leaders are self-aware. 
Servant leaders are self-aware people. Have you ever heard of the, the, the mirror self-recognition test or the red spot technique experiment? Have you ever heard of this? If you're in, if you're in uh, uh, childhood development, childhood psychology, uh, you may have uh, seen this before. If you've studied animals, you may have seen this test before. It was developed uh, by a guy named Gordon Gallup. He was actually a biopsychologist, and he worked with chimpanzees. And here was the experiment. He would anesthetize uh, chimpanzees, put them to sleep, And he would create this uh, alcohol-solvent, odorless, tactile-less dot that he would put on the forehead or on the brow of the chimpanzee. So the chimpanzee is asleep in this room. He puts the dot on their head, and then he brings a mirror into the room. The chimpanzee comes, uh, comes to wake up, and now Dr. Gallup, he wants to see how the chimpanzee interacts with the mirror. And so many times the chimpanzee will cross the path of the mirror, will look at the mirror and think that they have an enemy primate in front of them and they'll punch the mirror, shattering it. But other times as the experiment rolled on, what Dr. Gallup began to notice is that the chimpanzee began to notice their reflection. First, they began to notice movement, their movement corresponding to the movement that they were witnessing in in the mirror, and then soon enough, what they began, what he began to see was, and this was the telltale for, for if the chimpanzee was actually recognizing themselves, they would begin to try to wipe the red dot off their forehead, and Dr. Gallup used that uh, as the tell to say this is when the chimpanzee knows that they're looking at themselves. When they recognize that there is something on their face that doesn't belong. They recognize it, that it's their face, and that red dot shouldn't be there. Well, well, child development theorists began to use similar techniques in the 1970s. They would take toddlers, they would take infants, they wouldn't put them to sleep. They would put a mirror in their space, and they would watch them interact with the mirror. There's actually a psychologist right down uh, the road at Emory named Dr. Roche, who who says that when a child begins to come to that point of self-awareness, when they're looking in the mirror, there's a stage called uh, self-identification, and it's similar to the chimpanzee. When they notice that if they move their hand, the thing in the mirror moves with them. They don't necessarily recognize that it's themselves they're looking at, but their corresponding movement. And they're beginning to say, I have something to do with what I'm seeing, right? And then the next phase is, is, has to do with brain development. Dr. Roche says it's, it's the process of permanence where the child actually recognizes themselves in the mirror. They see themselves and they say, that's me. They know that's them. And the idea of permanence is, is that they begin to etch in their own mind. This is a brain development thing. Etch in their own mind what they look like so that when they look at pictures, you know, little toddlers, when they're going through picture albums, they can say, that's me. They recognize themselves. So I thought as I was doing a little research on this, I thought that was the sort of the last level of awareness. Like when you can recognize what you look like, who you are, what your identity is, etc. But Dr. Roche says there's actually another level of self-awareness. He calls it meta-awareness. And that's when a person not only sees himself or herself, but they also become aware of others seeing them. They also become aware that there are other people looking at them, making decisions about them. 
seeking to define them. They begin to understand that others can, can recognize them and that, that they're part of this larger system, something bigger than themselves. That this child is a being that is similar and yet different to other beings. This idea of meta-awareness. Now, here's what's fascinating. I think this is a, a duh moment that we all know, but, but from a scientific perspective, childhood uh, psychologists will will say that, that, that this sort of notion of how other people see me actually defines my identity. It defines who I am. What I see you seeing me defines what I think about myself. So if everybody in this sermon had their heads down and was shaking their heads like that, I'm going to have an opinion of myself based on the way you see me. And I see you, and the way I look at you, if I say a hard part in the sermon, I'm looking right at you. You may make a judgment about yourself. See, see, in this idea of meta-awareness, it's not something that just stays with us in childhood, but something that lasts a lifetime. That we not only define ourselves by what we see in the mirror, but we define ourselves by what other people see. We shape our identity and our self-understanding based in large part to that reality. So on one hand, self-awareness is about how we view the world. It's how we show up in the world. But on the other hand, self-awareness is what the world thinks of us or what we think the world thinks of us. Self-awareness is also how we think the world perceives our showing up in it. Self-awareness is about knowing your instincts. It's about knowing your strengths. It's about knowing your weaknesses. It's about knowing your experiences that have shaped you, the euphoric experience, the traumatic experience, the experiences that so many of us have, have walked through, all of those things shape our self-understanding. But we also project that out to other people. And other people will begin to see us, and we see them seeing us, with the whole package, all of these stories, the euphoric and the traumatic, all of these strengths, all of these weaknesses, and we begin to make assumptions about who we are. Not just on what we see, but what others see or what we think they see. Now, there's method here to this madness. Because I think Christians ought to engage the topic of self-awareness in this particular way and the, the idea of meta-awareness, I think we need to address it in a theological sense. To think about meta-awareness theologically. Because ultimately, ultimately when we think about the other seeing us, we could just define God as the holy other. And we may ask the question, how does God see us? This meta-awareness, not just about what we see of ourselves, but what does God see when God sees us? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? What does God see when God sees me? Because I can guarantee that the way you answer that will deeply impact, profoundly impact your sense of self. Your awareness of self, your identity, it shapes it profoundly. And I think self-awareness in this sense is a critical skill for servant leaders because it asks theologically two of the most important questions we can ask. Who am I and what am I supposed to do? 
Who am I and what am I supposed to do? And when you model, when you use Jesus rather as the model of servant leadership, you, you realize that he was absolutely clear in answering these two questions. In the story that Andrew read for us from Luke chapter 2, Jesus has accompanied his parents to, uh, to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. They've left Nazareth, their little town, and they're on their way to the big city to have this religious celebration. And, and they would travel in caravans. They would travel in community. It would be like all of us sort of maybe getting out onto Peachtree, getting all of our cars lining up maybe, and then, and then maybe driving to a spiritual place, maybe the birthplace of Dr. King. We're making a little pilgrimage there. The whole community goes together. That's what they're doing. They're going to Jerusalem for the Passover. They celebrate it's over. Everybody gets back in their caravan, and they, and they start moving back toward Nazareth. Mary and Joseph, they don't see Jesus, but their assumption is that he's fine, that he's with the community. He's with his second cousin or something. He's with their next-door neighbors. He's okay. They come to realize that he's not with them, and they immediately turn around, and they head back to Jerusalem. And they have some words with Jesus once they find him. He's in the temple. He's in church. He's listening and, and gleaning the wisdom of the rabbis. And they have words for him. And the way I imagine it is, is when my brother and I or, or our cousins, we, we'd get in trouble with our Italian great aunts who talked with their hands more than their mouths. And they would be red-faced. And I imagine Mary and Joseph taking on this, this sort of disposition. And they'd say, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? Why are you breaking my heart like this? Why weren't you with us? And Jesus has this wonderful response. We may deem it sassy. He says, did you not know I should be in my father's house? You take that story, and then you add the story that I read. Just in brief, this story about Jesus' baptism, a, a voice comes from heaven and, and clearly says, it's the voice of God, it says to Jesus, Behold, this is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is self-aware of how God sees him. Jesus knows exactly how God sees him. He sees him as the beloved, and he sees him as having purpose, that he should be about God's business. And so when you think of meta-awareness from a theological perspective, and you want to know what God thinks about you, what does God see when God sees you? Because of our baptism, because of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection, God sees a beloved child. And God sees somebody who needs to be about God's business. Jesus is absolutely clear about his identity and his purpose. And the gift to the Christian that he gives us, the gift he gives to the world, is a gift of grace that says you are that person too. And servant leaders are aware of that fact. But here's the reality. Even though a servant leader wants to carry that image into the world, wants to present that identity into the world, wants to present and live out that purpose into the world, we don't always do it correctly. We don't always get it right. And here's what makes, I think, someone uh, who's a servant leader in self-awareness different than somebody who doesn't possess this gift or these skills or these competencies. Here it is. The servant leader who is self-aware admits that they're wrong. How many of us 
need to admit sometimes that we're wrong. The servant leader admits that they don't always bear this purpose and this identity into the world. They admit that there are other purposes and other identities combating for their allegiance. And they admit that this isn't the image that I always project. Sometimes I'm projecting out of self-centeredness. Sometimes I'm projecting out of pain. Sometimes I'm living an identity and a purpose that is about what the world wants of me and not what God wants of me. And so people who are self-aware, servant leaders who are self-aware, confess. They seek God's forgiveness. And they're restored and they're renewed to live into that identity afresh. They fundamentally, servant leaders who are self-aware, fundamentally understand themselves to be children of God, beloved of God. And they understand themselves to be about the business of God's purpose and kingdom. And when we don't get it right, when they don't get it right, they admit it. They acknowledge it. That's what the servant leader does and seeks God's forgiveness to show up in the world again. There's two parts to this sermon, and I, the second part is much shorter than the first. Uh, it's about stewardship, and it's about the way in which self-awareness naturally leads to stewardship. Because here it is in logical terms. When you know who you are and what you're supposed to do, the third part is you should go do it, right? When you know who you are and you know what you're supposed to do, the third part is you should go do it. And, and that's what stewardship is. Stewardship is, 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 is having an assessment of my gifts and my talents and my skills and saying, okay, God, how am I going to live out my identity? How am I going to bring about your business, your kingdom in the world. How am I going to do that? And I, and I steward that in the world. And I seek to do that in a way that, that, that helps, uh, that, that rather not helps, but, but portrays a deep, deep longing for that identity and for those purposes to be known. So I ask the question, what do I have? What has God put me in charge of so I can live out my identity and I can live out my purposes? And I'll close with this illustration because I think this, this example is one set before us that uh, is so uh, presently about stewardship in the life of our church. So presently about this idea of living out our identity, being a part of God's purposes, and using our gifts to steward, steward those gifts for God's purposes. And, and that is what I'm thinking of is, is our Project Epiphany. If you're new to the church, I encourage you to Google it. If you've been to the church and haven't read a lot of stuff recently about this, I encourage you to Google it. Uh, but for those who've been around, who've been paying attention, who have financially supported Epiphany, I'm so grateful to share with you that we've raised already in basically one month's time the quarter of a million dollars that we want to give away, thanks to this congregation, that we want to give away to empower social entrepreneurs young people principally who have big ideas to change the city and to change the world. We're gonna give a quarter of a million dollars away to about a handful of those social entrepreneurs. But there's a process. We had 90 applicants apply. We just closed the application pool, 90 applicants. There's gonna be a screening process that brings them down. And once we get to a pool of semifinalists, we'll have about 20, 25 semifinalists. Members from the congregation, will come alongside of those individuals. They'll be trained to be navigators 
and to, pres- and to bring uh, some expertise and skills into their lives. So these are individuals in the life of the church that have finance background, marketing background, uh, human resource background, business development planning, uh, strategic planning, leadership skills, that we're going to leverage these gifts, steward these gifts in this congregation to help these social entrepreneurs get their sea legs. Now, here's what's amazing about this project, because I've had these conversations with people already just a few months in. They have said to me, people from this congregation, you know, I'm really good at finance, or I'm really good at leadership development, or I'm really good at developing people. I'm really good at developing strategy, but I have never been asked by the church to use those gifts for God's purposes. I've never been asked that. I use them out in the world. I use them to make a living, to support my family, to give to the church, to give to things I care about. But the church has never asked me to use those gifts until now. And we are over already 100 people who have stepped up. And if you want to know more about it, come to me after worship. I'll get you connected to the right people. But here's an example of where we see our gifts, we see what we have to offer the world, and we say, it's not just about making money, it's not just about my my own needs or supporting my family, it's about participating in God's business in the world, participating in what God wants to do in this city and beyond. That's stewardship. It's when you assess what you have, your experiences, your gifts, your strengths, your weaknesses, and you say, God, I want to use these to be about your business, to be about your kingdom. Friends, as we seek to lead like Jesus, may we be self-aware. And may we be stewards of all that God has put us in charge of, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. May it be so. Amen.